And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're gonna tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic. Hello, listener. I'm Carl Anker, and welcome to Talk of the Devils, the Manchester United podcast from The Athletic. It's been a while. I hope you're doing well, keeping safe. Uh, there's been a lot going on behind the scenes at Old Trafford at the moment, and we're going to take you inside the brand new hierarchy at the club. Who does what? Who reports to who? And who's responsible for signing the likes of Kylian Mbappe, Jaden Sancho, Erlen Haaland, Lionel Messi, Cristiano Ronaldo? You know the deal. To help me figure out everything going on at Manchester United at the moment, as ever, I am joined by my fellow Manchester United beat reporter for The Athletic, Mr. Laurie Whitwell. Hi, Laurie. How are you doing? Carl, I'm good. Yeah, it has been a while, hasn't it, since uh, we last did a podcast, um, you know, in the afterglow of the win at the Etihad, um, three different matches and also lots going on behind the scenes. So we'll get stuck into it. Hopefully we can provide the listeners with something new and, and informative. There's been a lot going on, especially now. I mean, I'm looking at Andy Mitten's background here and it doesn't look like his traditional digs in Barcelona. He, <laughs> Andy, I'm going to give you a proper intro. You are the editor of United We Stand, you're the contributing writer to The Athletic, and you are somewhere in mainland Europe. Whereabouts are you? <laughs> I'm in Madrid. I've just arrived in Madrid ahead of um, Real Madrid against Atalanta. I'm covering the game in the Champions League, and then I'm getting up very early, and I'm flying to Milan for the game on Thursday between AC Milan and Manchester United. Uh, Milan went into lockdown yesterday, so I feel like I'm, I'm cursed. You know, <laughs> I know Milan is... Not everyone's favourite tourist city, but I really like it. I've got some friends there. Lots of footballers live there. It's usually a fertile hunting ground for a journalist and can't meet them. After what happened last month, we've gone to Real Sociedad for the game that never was. At least at least the game should take place in San Siro. And, and it is a big game between two huge clubs. So I'll report back next week. You're getting closer every time. You're going to be one of the very few journalists at the San Siro, so I look forward to see whatever report you make afterwards. Now remember, listener, you can subscribe to The Athletic for the special price of $3.99 a month for the next six months. That's 40% off the full price of a subscription. You'll be able to enjoy great analysis and in-depth features from the very best football writers around, as well as ad-free versions of all of our podcasts. All you need to do to take advantage of this is go to theathletic.com slash manunitedpod. That's theathletic.com slash manunitedpod to get a special 40% discount off new subscribers. Right then, Manchester United managed to draw against Milan. They managed to eventually beat West Ham. But I think the most interesting thing that's happened around Old Trafford in the last seven days or so is this new backroom shuffle. Manchester United have a football director, not quite a director of football, and a technical director in uh, Darren Fletcher. Laurie, I want to throw this one to you because you've been working really hard the past week. You've got a wonderful little family tree dolled up to explain exactly what's going on with Manchester United and this uh, gentleman called John Murta. Yes. Well, props to you, Carl. It was your idea for the family tree. And then we've got some great guys on graphics that pulled it all together from my attempt at drawing it on an A4 piece of paper with the biro, uh, you know, trying to draw the lines across and, and make sure people are in the right kind of positions. It's not a perfect structure. There's certainly people not on there that have been flagged to me but this was more a case of trying to show the first team level recruitment structure, which is basically what has, has altered really with John Murta and, and Darren Fletcher giving these formal roles. Both of them, obviously, internal appointments and a lot of the role that they will be undergoing is stuff that they're doing already in a way. Certainly John Murta has been at the club since 2013 and has built a reputation within Carrington for being someone who can get stuff done, is a good listener. Uh, John Murta, very close to Ed Woodward in the early stages when he was first chief executive, being able to sort of realise that he needed a bit of assistance in bringing all the different, I suppose, jobs that, that Woodward was going uh, through together uh, in a kind of more cohesive way. A lot of the stuff that he will now be doing is just now on the senior level. So 
perhaps he will be taking the calls from certain agents inquiring about a player that might be available on loan, whereas Woodward might have been taking those calls previously. And really, he shouldn't be taking those kind of calls when you're a chief executive of a, a company, you know, a club as big as Manchester United. It does mean that Matt Judge's role is slightly tweaked. He now reports into John Murta, whereas before he was the head of corporate development was his clunky title. He's now, you know, more accurately described as head of negotiations, which is basically what he does. He goes in and, and speaks to agents and speaks to clubs on transfer fees and contracts. He will now report into John Murta, um, who is basically on a similar level to Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, although he doesn't have sort of any kind of responsibility for appointing the manager or for, you know, getting rid of a manager. He is another addition within the structure to hopefully make things progress smoother, which is, I think, what we've been you know sort of calling out for a, a function within the club that can actually go and you know get these players signed over the line now he's done some good stuff in the academy side of things Hannibal Mesbury led to believe that he was instrumental in getting him signed to the club and he, he looks like he's progressing well obviously you know we don't know exactly how well he will play for United's first team ultimately but so far the signs are, are encouraging and he went above and beyond I think in that one you know going to Paris to make sure that the family were on board with the signing making sure that they felt comfortable I suppose it's another step now to doing that at senior level and that's the challenge for him to actually, you know, go and impress these kind of guys on a first team level uh, rather than just at the academy level. Um, and Darren Fletch is in there. Uh, it was said um, by one um, person at the club that th- the technical element of, of his job description is very important. You know, he's the guy that has, has played football at a very high level. He understands the game um, to to an enormous degree and he he is a football presence that can go and perhaps be a first point of contact in these kind of negotiations or in these attempts to show off Manchester United to potential signings. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer made that point very clearly when he was asked about it in the press conference afterwards. So I think these are are good moves for United because it does mean a clarity of structure whereas before perhaps there was a little bit of a gap so Matt Judge whose background is in banking might have taken calls on football matters that he didn't really want to get involved in he would defer to Ole Gunnar Solskjaer which is right he's the manager of Manchester United and ultimately he takes all those calls but now John Murta might be able to add a little bit more football knowledge into that equation he didn't play the game but he did play he did um, work at Everton he worked at the Premier League um, in the EPPP plan um, so he understands how academies work how the women's game work he's, he's been doing a lot of work on that he also did some work on the recruitment side of things making a, a specific appointment in the structure so that you've got a sort of data um a data brain sort of in the mix on there so so you've got Stephen Brown who will um, oversee Marcel Boot, Mick Court, Jim Lawler as the kind of the main scouts so to speak so that they're the kind of guys using their eyes more and and Stephen Brown's got the data uh, side of things to kind of map it all together um so yeah but we'll we'll see how it actually pans out because clearly whilst these appointments aren't solely recruitment you know the the club were at planes to to make that clear I think people will judge their success on whether United can now go and get the the you know the the number one uh, targets in the world to, to bring into the first team level and make sure that United are actually challenging for titles. Um, I know that there were some people that thought maybe this was an, an opportunity to appoint somebody who is already established in that kind of mould, you know, your Ralph Rangnick, your Edwin van der Sar perhaps, um, but United have gone internal. I think there's trust there, you know, for that reason. Uh, and we'll see if it works. You know, I think the jury will be out. It's a lot of names a lot of changes and yet also perhaps not too many. Andy, I want to get your thoughts here. Um, this isn't, I want to keep specifying, this isn't a director of football in the same way you know it, in the same way as Monkey and Sevilla, yeah, in terms of there's one person who does everything. This is very much a job split between two different people, um, two people that, Andy, I think you know to decent amounts. So what are your thoughts here? To say that it's not a conventional sporting director, the first thing I'd say to that is what is Arsene Wenger said, what is a sporting director? People have this image of the, the star sporting director, Monchi, this guy who finds Danny Alves playing football on a beach and turns him into the, the best right back in the world. Every club has different models. And I think there's some important things there. Ollie wanted Darren Fletcher to come in. I don't think Ollie wanted a, a full sporting director who had Monchi levels of power in the same way that Jose Mourinho certainly didn't. 
the number of people who are employed on the football side continues to expand. If you compare it to the numbers involved when United won the treble, it's staggering. There's more people working with the under-18s now than working than we're working with United for the treble. I think Darren Fletcher is a massive plus for the club. He reads football very well. He's very bright, articulate, charismatic, can hold a room, has always been a complete football geek. I've known him for a long time. He asked me bizarre questions about Spanish fullbacks and Spanish football culture or derby games in, in South America. And I like that about him. Jamie Carragher's like that as well, to his credit. Absorbs football all the time. And Darren came in because Ollie wanted him to come in and spent some time with the, the youth team, with some of the even younger teams. And he was just trying to work out what he did next. So his career finished at Stoke, wasn't a happy ending to a very successful career. And he had a bit of a rough time after Stoke where he sort of figured out what comes next in, in life. But it would have been a crying shame if he who lives very close to Carrington with his family, with the dog, had gone to Manchester City, for example. Because one of his boys went to Manchester City when Phil Neville and Ruth Van Nistelrooy sent their kids to Manchester City. So I really like his judgment. I speak to football people every single day of my life and I would put him in the top three of people whose judgment I would trust. So what's his job now, in addition to what Laurie's saying? It's finding who the players are who can improve Manchester United. And obviously the, the, the scouting databases and the scouts will pull up a player from Seville, for example, and there'll be 10 different clubs watching him. And it's Fletcher's job to watch so closely and feed him and speak to and collaborate with the, the other people like McFeelan, like Oli Gunnar, and, and John as well. And John didn't play football, but he's been in football for 23 years. And we'll come to John. And Fletcher's basically got to work out, can this guy improve Manchester United? It's all right saying X is very good for Benfica or for Porto. Can he come and improve Manchester United? Is he the right age profile? Um, how does he react under pressure? What's his form like? What's his character like? It's all right watching a player on TV doing tricks and turns. What's he like as a person? So adding more depth, adding more contacts. Manchester City do that brilliantly with Benfica. And that's why they end up getting Ruben Diaz. So I'm encouraged that Darren's working at the club in this role. And he's been at the club a long time. He's been a winner at the club. He, he can pass on a bit of that what makes Manchester United successful. He can see the tiny things. He can see that if a player puts a picture of himself on a private jet going on holiday the day after a big defeat, it's not a good look. Tone is so important in setting the mood, which doesn't need a lot to be kicked off anyway. There's so many angry Manchester United fans around. You can be 10 minutes into a game and if the team haven't started well, there's so many angry people there, more so in the pandemic, more so without fans at matches. And it's really noticeable. And these, these young players are, are reading this. If they can be helped, then that's a good thing as well. John's a United fan. John's a Manchester lad. John's done the, the, a lot of good work at the club, like Laurie was saying. And I spent a day with him at Carrington last year. Four hours just going around Carrington, not Carrington, um, the Cliff training ground. Just really in-depth stuff. Not for journalism, just soaking stuff in asking questions. And I could see the people who were coming to him, it was parents, it was agents. And he was introducing people as this is a friend of the club. And he was like the interface between so many different parts of the club, people coming up to him all the time. And he would say, now this is going to be a bit difficult tonight. We've got an issue there with that. Oh, here's Sheila. You know, Sheila, uh, Jack Crompton's wife from the 1948 team. It's good for football clubs to have people like this. How much power they're going to have? I can't answer that. I think there's a lot of people who think that Edward would decide who's going to be signed or who isn't going to be signed. If Manchester United are ninth in a year's time, there's going to be criticism for everyone, including John, including Darren Fletcher, including Ollie, for everyone. It's, it's so results-based, but I think that good things are happening. The youth system is getting better and better. John oversaw a lot of that. And he put a lot of noses out of joint. It's not everyone's cup of tea. Maybe you need to do that sometimes. Maybe you need to disrupt. And he would be well aware. You could say to him, 
what's Bournemouth's training ground like? And he'd give you a detailed answer. He knows. He knows what, where Manchester United are. He knows that Tottenham have got a better stadium, a better training ground. He spends his life doing that. The last time I saw him a, a month ago was at a women's game. I think he was the only club official there, beyond the people working directly with the women's side of things. So his danger is he shouldn't be seen as being Ed's man. He's got to act. Football is so subjective. And I'll give you an example. When, when Manchester United were had a terrible start to last season, not this season. I'm hearing, and you know, you'll speak to the same sort of people, good contacts. People saying to me, you should be finding out who brought Fred into the club because I'm hearing this. And these are high-level contacts. You should be digging around this. And then when six weeks later, form has picked up massively, it flips. And it's like, he's got a good eye for a player in. He was the one who spotted Fred. So you, you sort of think so many contradictions, so much, so much subjectivity, hypocrisy as well. And John has got to add some structure and bring organisation to that. And it, it's the niggly stuff. If Man United are playing a European game in Milan, they want to be in the right hotel. Now, he's not going to go out and check an Ibis out. But it just just if you've got a big knowledge base, you've got to know that that hotel is a good place to go to. And United got it wrong. United stayed in the wrong hotel in before the 2009 Champions League final. When I last saw Johnny, just got back from Bergamo to smooth out and make sure everything went well with Ahmad. And he had to do 14 days quarantine. This isn't all glamorous. <laughs> and he's often, I, I don't think he wants a high profile. You mentioned Hannibal Medjbri. He took him to Oslo pre-season for that game in July 19. Hi, Hannibal. I'm going to look after you today, Hannibal. This is Manchester United. Hi, Hannibal. This is Oli Gunnar. And this is Marcus Rashford. And the kid loved it. You need someone like that. It's better to have someone like him there than a banker. And, you know, Matt Judge is, is from a banking background, and he's never done that. Matt Judge is the, a negotiator. The idea that Matt Judge sees a left-back at PSG and think he'll be worth a go. It's nonsense. And, and Woodward as well. I put it to him last year. He just said, I can't spot a player. Not at all. Not at all. So it's for United to decide who they want, who the team want, rather than an agent coming saying, you should have this player. If they do that, then Manchester United can say, we've already looked at him 27 times and he's not quite right for us, but thanks for the call. But the proof will be in the pudding. It sounds as if Manchester United as a club are getting back on track after a couple of years on the managers prior to Solskjaer. So if only because people are going, we used to do it this way, This is that seems to be the way for United to go forward. Lloyd, what do you think about the current system? Yeah, I think certainly this, this will improve matters because you've got a, a clear delineation of tasks and responsibilities. And I think this is a crucial point as to what Andy was saying there about, you know, just Matt Judge's role. And this is not to denigrate the guy. He obviously knows what he's doing when he gets into negotiations, but, uh, you know, he's not a football brain. He's, that's not his style. I think rugby's, you know, his sport. So, you know, you, to have him as the kind of first point of contact for agents who were kind of asking whether, you know, United would let a certain player out on loan or whether they were interested in in, in buying a certain player. You know, he, he didn't have the authority to make that kind of call. And I, and I don't think John will, you know, have the authority either really ultimately, but he will be able to have the conversation on a much more football-based level, which I think is is something that's important. You know, we've, we've heard before that United's, approaches to certain players has perhaps been let down by a lack of football expertise at the original stages of of those approaches and and I think this will you know change the picture on that this episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra the official beer sponsor of the NBA want to get closer to the game than ever before Michelob Ultra courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear courtside seats to an NBA game and more Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Larry, I want to talk about another behind-the-scenes bit at Manchester United. You've wrote a, well, a slightly more personal column on uh, Avram Glazer, who sold a number of his personal shares in Manchester United last week. Please explain this for me. Um, I really like the fact that you basically spent the entire week going through club accounts. 
<laughs> yeah, it can be quite dry, can't it? But I just felt that this was a, an important topic that we needed to cover because it was, you know, it's a significant amount of money that Avran Glazer is hoping to raise by selling these shares that he's got until March the 16th for them to to, to be sold. So we'll, we'll see how much ultimately he does raise. But just based on what the, the share price was when this got announced, it looks like $100 million in in shares being sold, which are his shares, um, you know, uh, he, he would st- well, he still retain a large number of shares ultimately afterwards, about 13% voting rights personally when it comes to board vision. So the Glazers are, it would result in, in the Glazer shares divesting, you know, a bit more of a varied shareholder base, but at the same time, not <laughs> relinquishing any of their control over decisions or the direction of the club. So, but still that would be an attractive proposition for certain people, for certain investors to have a, a bit of United and ideally they, they would look at it and go, okay, well, the share price is going to go up. But w- where I was coming from with it was just this idea that the Glazers primarily have titles as their, you know, driving motivation for, for United. Because I think if you are at the same time as, you know, the club are clearly being hit by the pandemic, we, we had the investor call the previous week where it was spelled out how much the lack of fans in stadiums had, had hit the club, you know, 30 million in, in one quarter. Um, the fact that they had drawn down 60 million pounds of a revolving credit facility that then boosted their cash revenues to about 80 million. But, you know, without that, it would be down about 20 million when a couple of years previous, it was 300 million. And, you know, that has taken a hit because of player purchases, you know, Harry Maguire, Bruno Fernandes primarily. But nevertheless, it's a, a straightened kind of time financially for United. And we're looking ahead to the summer market where we're looking at probably one marquee player coming in and then the rest dependent on player sales, probably. You know, it, it, we'll see how it all shakes out. My point with this was that that's fine. It's Avram Glazer's shares to sell. You know, the Glazers have the six siblings have have um, you know basically the, the the full club or seventy odd percent of the club in shares, so they can sell them. It's a capitalist market, you know. It's a, that's how this kind of thing works, and he can you know take the the money for himself. Estate planning is what we're told, you know. So fine, but at the same time, I don't think you can then say that the driving motivation is titles because if it was, you know, there's been numerous owners throughout the years who have invested their own money in in, in clubs or you know uh, basically given a bit of a, a boost to transfer. You know, you look at Leicester, the amount that their owners have, have pumped into the club. You look across town, a, a state-funded football club. Uh, you know, and I'm not expecting, you know, the Glazers never arrive with that kind of banner saying this is what we're going to do for the club. They saw the club as an investment opportunity and they have definitely made it worth their while. But I suppose I just wanted to point out that if they really were after titles in this summer of, you know, difficult spending, perhaps they could theoretically have reinvested that money into the club but listen it was never going to happen once this goes through if it all happens as we expect it to it'll push the glazers personal taking from the club to about 300 million pounds which includes their dividends so they haven't stopped taking dividends to the full amount throughout the whole pandemic which is a question you could have raised Uh, and then that actually takes them past the 270 million pounds that they personally invested in the original in the first place for to buy the club so they're in profit already plus they've still got the shares which equate to you know the club is valued at you know two and a half billion dollars so they've still got that as a as a you know as an asset so that's why it just stuck in the crawl a little bit for me i got a few pelters on from the subscribers <laughs> suggesting that what was i talking about of course he's allowed to, to spend his money as he wishes it's his own shares but i think when you've loaded the club with debt and your leverage takeover you know to the of 400 500 million pounds currently you really i would have thought some responsibility to try and make that right first before you start personally profiting but um yeah i don't know what what do you think andy i was really surprised by the reaction to your piece because we've probably got similar views on the takeover i've said it publicly many times i don't think highly leveraged buyouts should be allowed of football clubs i don't think it's a good look when avram is set to get another x million in the times that we're in. But on the other hand, I think they must have been incredibly smart to do this because it has been a fantastic investment um, for them. But I was surprised at the reaction because when I speak to United fans, or if you read the pages of, of United We Stand, it's Glazers equals bad. Mm-hmm. And has been has been that for, for 16 years. And anyone who variates from that is, what? Are you crazy? But on the Athletic, and I like the Athletic below the line comments, there's some... I think there's some real intelligence there and I quite like it because it's it's a bit, a bit different to how Twitter sometimes is. You, you could never enter a reasonable debate on Twitter about anything, I don't feel. 
And I was surprised that so many people thought that what he was doing was absolutely nothing wrong. And maybe that's a US-UK thing. Maybe it's like, this is capitalism. This is how it is. He's doing nothing wrong. But it, it still sur surprised me. And the fact that it's still taking dividends and... You know, United never needed to be taken over by anyone. They're, they're big enough not to need an oligarch or uh, money from, from a sovereign um, state fund. And I just don't know what the plan B is. I don't know what the perfect model is. I always thought it was Barcelona's model. And the problem with that is it involves humans. And many humans. They, yeah, <laughs> yeah, many of them. And it, they just end up, you know, pissing on their own doorstep and ruining everything. So I've got good, good piece, just very interesting reaction why do you think the reaction was like that i think you're probably right i mean listen certainly we had lots of comments that were you know from a, a very uh, partisan point of view very very negative against the glazers the ones that were kind of suggesting to me you know what's the fuss about it's private shares he can do what he, li he likes with them i guess you know that perhaps it is a, a us uk thing you know in, in the us it's more open that kind of stuff you know it's it's a, a way of life you know the american dream i suppose you know is is built on that premise and, and listen i i wouldn't begrudge anybody who had invested in you know apple when they were a small you know emerging company and then selling their shares for hundreds of millions whatever you know that's that's their punt that they took and, and, and fantastic it's i would always say it's slightly different in this case just because as you say the leverage takeover then effectively the club you know paid for the majority of the takeover by the glazers so i would have thought just as a, a kind of ethical level just set that right first and then you can you know make the own personal profit as, as you like and particularly with this idea that they're you know, they want to win things, you know, because if that is really the case, if that is truly the case, that the way that United will win things is by having a squad that's got the depth of Manchester City, uh, that's got quality, established quality. Uh, you know, I like what they've done with certain purchases of, of emerging players. As you know, we saw Ahmad score his first goal for United, a lovely header, which I don't know if that was in the scouting reports too much, you know, his aerial <laughs> ability. But, and it's, for, you know, for a significant amount of money. So you can't, you can't say that the Glazers haven't spent, you know, for sure, you know, a billion pounds I think since Ferguson retired but obviously it's the way that it's been spent and also the fact that it feels like at those pivotal moments when United could go again and make a real statement so after United finished second under Jose Mourinho in 2018 last summer got into the Champions League place so they knew the revenue which we, we found you know in this last month that the revenue from the Champions League broadcast pool, pool does really elevate um, their overall income it was another it's underwhelming summer and I just look ahead to this summer coming up and I wonder you know exactly who they will sign if, if they will sign anyone of, of real quality and you know you look at you know 70 odd million pounds it'll probably be for Avram Glazer personally and that is a, a top level player you know it's, I, I probably got it slightly wrong people pulled me up admittedly in the uh, suggesting that Erling Haaland it, it might it might buy Erling Haaland which yeah okay fine not until the rest <laughs> yeah it might take a little bit more than that but listen it'd be a, a significant down payment first a first installment maybe you can easily picture the players that United could potentially buy for 70 odd million and that actual that money is going to Avram Glazer I I heartily recommend you check out this piece, listener. Uh, I had a very strange bit where last week I was reading this piece about Avram Glazer selling his shares. And then this week I was getting push notifications through my athletic app telling me where the Tampa Bay Buccaneers were uh, signing new players to brand new contracts and building around Tom Brady because they've just won the Super Bowl. So uh, if you want to know where the Glazers might be wanting to get more titles from, it might be there. We do have to say that that is a, a difference, though. There isn't. <laughs> it's not like I'm just taking that money and putting it into Tampa Bay just to interject there. Uh, yes. Just because I know that a few of my mates have, have asked me uh, and pointed that out. And I say, listen, it's not the case. They've got NFL funding for that. It's a very strict uh, structure over there. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. 
Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer, if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Oligon Solskjaer has been in reports apparently to uh, enter negotiations for a contract extension. Uh, I recently wrote a piece off the West Ham game and I did ask Ole Gunnar Solskjaer if he was beginning to plan for United for the future uh, and he sort of gave me a wry smile and went his uh, thoughts are very much on doing the best job he can every single day. Andy, you've seen more Manchester United managers than I have. Do you have any thoughts on a possible contract extension for Mr Solskjaer? I think you'll get one if this season has been seen to be a success. I think it's still in play and if United were to finish second and, and win a cup the majority would say that that is a success. He's continuing to make success. If United were to drop out the top four and not win anything, the opposite of that would be true. I don't think Ollie's dropping any bombs on the slide to say that he's talking to other clubs. I think that he should get one. I don't think he's never struck me as someone who plays off other clubs to try and get the best deal. You know, he's not going to be going skint with whatever he gets offered. But I think it will come at the end of the season. And the stuff now is just, it's, it's balance of probability stuff. It's United are second, he's doing all right. But if United lose in Milan and lose at Leicester, our tones will always be far less uh, optimistic and people will be talking about a new manager. I think United absolutely want him to stay manager and are committed to him and think that he's doing uh, a, a good job. That's got to become a very good job. But it's difficult. We can mention all these different improvements. There's a big problem here called Manchester City and Pep Guardiola. Pep needs just to relax, call it a day in Manchester, go to the Costa Brava and just put his feet up. I agree wholeheartedly. (laughs) Uh, Moving on to United Academy. Uh, And there's been some contract extensions for a number of players. Uh, Hannibal Medjury, more commonly referred to as simply Hannibal, where he's playing, and Anthony Alanga have both been have both signed brand new contracts at the club. Hannibal's just signed what appears to be a long term contract, and knowing Manchester United, there's probably a plus one add on qualifier in there because United do love the plus one deal. Uh, Laurie, you've watched Hannibal a number of times. Uh, I've seen him two or three times with Andy as well, and we've both agreed uh, most under twenty three teams try to just kick seven shades out of him because he's so good. What do you think uh, United make of uh, the youngster? Yeah, no, he's very high thought of. I wrote uh, a piece in David Ornstein's column a few weeks ago that Mesbury and Shola Shoretire were going to be joining Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's first team and they have done and they both now sign new contracts to, to reflect that sort of race status. So I think that just really shows uh, the standing that both of them are held in. Both of them have, have played really well for the 23s this season. Obviously, you know, way above their ages. Hannibal in particular, as you say, he does get a kick in on the regular. And last season, I think he uh, perhaps went to ground a little bit too easy and the coaches wanted him to just respond in the right way to, to the attention that he, he gets. I mean, he's got, you know, his, his legs are so thin that a bit Riyad Mahrez, the kind of, uh, you know, usually footballers have tree trunks for legs, don't they? But he's, you know, quite nimble, very skillful, technical. And I think some players think they can rough him up because of that. But when I've spoken to people that know him well, that they actually say he's hard as nails and you can try and kick him off the pitch, but he'll keep getting back up. And this season certainly has been punctuated by those kind of instances. He even played on with a broken nose in an EFL trophy game earlier this season, um, shoved a couple of stents up there and, and just carried on. Uh, I actually went to the game where he, his last game for United under-23s against Arsenal, Ahmad was supposed to play. He, he was ill, so he then called off the game. Hannibal went off after about 15 minutes because he rolled himself and, and, and injured his shoulder. And that, that's the only reason why he's not been in a first-team squad so far, um, because he's just recovering from that. And I'm sure once he is you know fine and, and fit, he'll be around the squad and, and maybe even making his debut this season. Um, and I think the contract is a reflection of that. They're, they're very pleased with how he's progressing. I think it's quite interesting. United are about to play AC Milan on Thursday, and both teams, yes, they're pro- you know the Premier League is probably and Serie A are probably going to go to their crosstown rivals in blue. But if you look at to the academy and you look at the first team, and you look at their manager, things seem to be going in a promising direction. What, what do you think, Andy? Very promising, and I've written it many times. And 
spoken to people like Neil Wood many times uh, for The Athletic, uh, Nick Cox, Nicky Butt, and some of the players, including Anthony Alanga, who's just signed a, a new contract. A mate of mine, Neil Meehan, messaged me straight after that, said if he ever gets into the first team, we've got to be singing to the tune of La Bamba. Langa. But just imagine that, a packed concourse at a way match <laughs> with everyone singing La Bamba. United are going for these top youth players and paying a lot of money for them, paying 8 million, 10 million, 12 million. And they're not the only ones doing it. Barcelona have got some cracking young players coming through. Real Madrid are probably doing it even more than, than anybody else. So I think that certainly in Barca's case, they felt stung by wasting money, uh, the Neymar money. And there's a financial necessity to do that. But there's no guarantees with young players. And it's all right buying a, a great fullback from Real Madrid or Atletico Madrid. Uh, the chances of making the first team and establishing themselves in the first team, that's maybe even more important, playing 50, 100 games, um, are, are still quite low. But these are some of the best young players in the world. And these are the, only, these are the ones we've spoken about. There's several more. United have signed some really good players and... They stockpiled some just before Brexit because the rules have changed about bringing players into the UK and the, the changes do not help Manchester United or other English clubs. So I think the, the academy system and the youth system, while it's not fully there yet, I think, well, City and Chelsea probably still have the edge in some areas. United are right up there now. Liverpool have improved a lot as well. And it's so much better than when I wrote a scathing piece about it coming up to six years ago now. Andy, thank you so much for mentioning how United Academy has changed since Brexit. Uh, pre previously, Laurie spoken to Nick Cox, who is the head of the Academy, about the changes that have come through. And we've got a little clip of that chat now. Brexit changes the dynamic for us. You know, in simple terms, the, the pool of talent that we are working with will be English players until the age of 16. And then, you know, Scottish, Irish, Welsh, from 16 to 18, and then potentially the rest of Europe or the world at 18. Our belief is that historically the best youth teams, best first, first teams have been a nice blend of local players who understand the club, understand the culture of the club, understand the history of the club, who are highly talented, will make up the core of every group, and then the best talent from further afield will complement um, that group of players and between them, you know, the local players will educate the incomers about how things are done and the incomers will bring the innovation from wherever they've come from. And that hopefully brings us to a really nice mixture of high potential talent. We've always been committed to local players. We've always been um, making sure that we, um, we, we get Manchester players, players from the Northwest, um, into the programme and, and, and hopefully into the first team but absolutely some of our best players have come from further afield over the years um, that is a slightly more difficult challenge it's the same for everybody post-Brexit so every English club now it has the same challenge that I have in terms of how do we access the best high potential talent there is an advantage if you're a European club there's a slightly greater movement of players that is afforded to those clubs that we no longer have because of those decisions that were made outside of our control um, so in order to circumnavigate the challenge we've got we have to be creative in our thinking and it will be a combination of bringing players to the club at a slightly later date it will be relationships partnerships it will be making sure that we absolutely continue to put an effort and energy into the local players and that we make sure that the best players nationally we bring in that's the solution I can assure you that um, you know behind the scenes Brexit's been coming for a long while and so we've had a long time to prepare for it so we are prepared for it but your recruitment strategy is probably the one thing at a football club that you don't share with anyone else so I'm not going to share with you <laughs> <laughs> that's absolutely understandable and fair <laughs> 
Yes, I don't know if you can hear at the end there. I I did try and get a little bit more from Nick Cox on what it might mean for United, the Brexit situation, you know, the relationships that he's talking about with other clubs in Europe. Um, It looks like, you know, they've got some informal sponsorships maybe with with other teams. Uh, You look at Club Bruges where um, Tahith Chong is on loan. I think uh, Fakundu Palistri was talked about as maybe going there. So I think if United have good cordial um, agreements at boardroom level with these kind of clubs, maybe they could, you know, come to some agreements on on getting players in there and then signing them at 18. It's, It's difficult to, you know, predict exactly how it's going to go but from what Nick Cox was saying there the, clearly they've got some plans in place um, ready to go and, and the announcements you know by the FA weren't a, a massive surprise in December certainly not when you you look back to last summer when they you know did sign um, Fernandez uh, from Real Madrid when they signed uh, Ganacho from Atletico Madrid uh, and Gerardo from Barcelona who I'm sure Andy knows about all those three players and, and they've all done different things so far at the club Ganacho actually was the first time I managed to see him for the under 18 against Salford City in the FA Youth Cup uh, he played on the wing did really well had a lot of sparks to his game and, and that was quite enjoyable seeing him Fernandez played at centre-back actually in that game when he is usually at left-back he's, he's played a lot actually for Neil Woods under-23 team even though only he's, own, he's only 17 um, he looks quite composed he's got a good engine on him so we'll see how those guys develop and um, clearly it's an area that United will continue to look at you know getting the best players from abroad as well as the ones from more closer to home um, which sort of leads me into a piece that I actually written after the back of the Salford City game looking at Charlie Savage Robbie Savage's son uh, he you know he grew up around the northwest um given uh, Robbie's um, football career you know he obviously played in the 92 FA Youth Cup winning team and we spoke to Charlie Savage after the game about sort of following in, in his dad's footsteps uh, and he, he came across really well actually sometimes I think when you ask players about their sort of famous fathers they can be a, a little bit bristly um, certainly Kaspersh Michael never really liked to be asked about you know his, his famous dad Peter but I think at this age it's sort of fair enough to just sort of ask because it's, it's such an important part of who they are you know really 17 year old clearly he's, he's played football with his dad you know coming up as a, as a kid but his answer was quite mature I thought just in terms of him wanting to be his own player you know he, he said that he um, he does speak to his dad about football I asked him whether his dad had the same kind of punditry uh, with him personally as he, as he shows on BT and, and BBC and obviously <laughs> can be yeah f- forgive that please forgive me for, for asking such a crowbar question but he did can be quite pun- punchy can't he when he's on TV Robbie Savage so um, and you know Charlie's son said um, listen he, he does I do speak to him but he actually lets me you know, be alone with the coaches. You know, you know the coaches know me um, better than anybody. They know what the club needs. They, they know how to guide me. So he kind of lets me figure out things for myself. You know, with the coaches. So I thought that was quite an interesting answer. But yeah, it was a a good game to watch. Um, Charlie McNeil scored again. I think that was his fifteenth goal in fifteen games for United this season. And then he went and scored another ga- goal for the under 18s against Sunderland. So sixteen and sixteen since signing for probably a, a fee that will will pass a million pounds um, overall um, from Manchester City uh, last summer. And he's got a bit of personality about him. You know, kiss the badge. He kissed the badge. Kiss the badge. He kissed the badge. Uh, against uh, Man City when. He scored four goals, although one of them was a, a sort of walking after City had scored in, in controversial circumstances. But he's a United fan, which I think made negotiations a lot more straightforward because there were a few clubs in for him last summer. But I think he had his heart set on going back to United. He did leave United when he was a, a lot younger to go to Man City. And, and so he's, he's done the reverse journey. And then after the game, he spoke about Liverpool in the next round of the FA Youth Cup and, and gave it a bit of spice there by sort of saying that if we beat them, we'd love to rub their noses in it. He did apologise later on Instagram for being a bit bit too perhaps over the top with that kind of thing and and Neil Ryan the manager the under 18s manager said he's got great character we, we have to make sure that he is respectful as everybody else is respectful but we don't want to beat you know any personality out of him it's good that he's got that kind of mentality I suppose so just want to watch but it was quite exciting to, to kind of see how the under 18s are doing in the FA Youth Cup, important competition, I think, that had obviously been postponed since January. So good to see it back and, you know, looks like a good match against Liverpool, hopefully in the next round. It sounds really promising. And that was a great read on Charlie Savage and a great look at United's possible future. Andy, I know you're working on a piece for United, or well, a moment from United's past. Yeah, I'm working on a piece on my way to Milan about the trip to Milan in 2005. It's it's not one which people remember fondly. United lost the game, went out to that wonderful Milan team who were probably the best team in the world, but it's the biggest ever United away following in the club's history, apart from a final in Europe. And it wasn't always pretty over there. 
So I've been drawing together lots of different accounts and you, you just wouldn't see in a way following that big now, not just because of the pandemic. You'd never get a ticket allocation uh, as big as that. Probably puts the people in Milan definitely don't want 10,500 Manchester United fans drinking outside the Duomo again. So I'm just drawing all that together. Um, I think fan culture is important, more so now that uh, there are no fans around. So that'll be on before before I get to Milan, hopefully. I'm getting there on Wednesday and uh, straight into a lockdown. So what we're going to do, read the athletic. We've had six minutes of stoppage time. He's gone quick from halfway. Oh, amazing! Unbelievable! Scott McTominay brings the house down. And Manchester United in the Manchester rain are going to do the double over City. Right the first time in a Let's decade. get into a little bit of a mailbag. Uh, thank you so much, listeners, for responding to Laurie's tweet for all of your burning Manchester United questions. We will get through some of them here and then a couple more in a future episode. We've got one question here from Stuart Garvey, Garv, at Garvey2000, who asks, can Scott McTominay be the long-term defensive midfielder for United or do they need to invest in a replacement for Nemanja Matic? Um, followers of my tweets will understand I yell a lot about the need for a number six uh, and Scott McTominay is one conversation that Laurie and I have uh, going backwards and forwards in the group chat quite often so Laurie what do you think about the future of Scott McTominay is he a six or something else recently certainly against West Ham for example he was actually more of a you know supportive number 10 to Bruno you know he was, he was getting into the box and I know he didn't you know get any strikes away or score at all but he was um although I suppose he, he got the header didn't he that sort of flicked does he get an assist for that <laughs> he said he can't claim it but he said he said he wouldn't try and claim the goal yeah but he might say, but, he might uh, claim the assist because I noticed that Bruno didn't get the assist for, for the corner at least so you know um <laughs> Ruined my FPL, that. <laughs> but he, he certainly, Scott McTominay certainly um, gets forward more, I think, than people perhaps appreciate. And, and, and he's added that to his game. Certainly when he came into the team under Jose Mourinho, he was asked to perform a very specific task, defensively minded and positionally aware. And he did that. But I think his natural game is, is more offensive. So I would be intrigued to see him as a defensive midfielder. But I think that would take away, you know, some of the stuff that he can offer. You know, the, the finishes that he's shown this season have been actually pretty technically high, you know, the, the quality of them. So I think United do ultimately want a replacement for Nemanja Matic. I think that's why they looked at Jude Bellingham, although I know he also has... A, you know, offensive part to his game. But I think that's why they were looking at him. And then obviously that fell apart and Nemanja Matic signed a new kind of long-term contract, you know, a couple of years with an extra one on top. So, you know, he, he's at the club for for a foreseeable future, but as long as United need him. But I do think ultimately they, they want a player that's that's got his kind of characteristics, perhaps a bit more mobile, but that has that kind of defensive rigour to his game. That Fred, Fred is, a, is, is, a, is that kind of midfielder, but in a more explosive way, you know, in a kind of more scattergun perhaps um, way, um, you know, gets across a lot of the turf. Whereas I think sometimes having that guy there positioned you know, making things tick over is, is what they need. And I was just looking at Declan Rice. Um, you know, I've, I've been impressed with him pretty much every time that United have, have faced West Ham. I think he's got a real maturity about his game, you know, stylish kind of way that he, he approaches it, clearly disciplined. And then when West Ham, you know, a bit disappointing the way they approached the game, wasn't it? But when they realised they needed to, you know, score a goal to get back into it, he was often the one that was making... The, that was forcing the play, um, you know, and you know, bringing the ball forward. So I would be intrigued to see if Declan Rice, you know, you know, United could look at Declan Rice as, as that kind of long-term option. That obviously, it'd cost a lot of money, as David Moyes has mentioned previously. But certainly, yeah, they, I think they would like to invest in a replacement for Matic. Andy, you want to get your thoughts here? I spoke to Pell Manuel Pellegrini about Declan Rice, and he said he saw him as being someone who played a bigger... Sorry, he said, um, not bigger, um, a club which... <laughs> which which wins trophies. Uh, there's a couple of points there. One, West Ham averaged 60,000 now, but I get what he was saying. And two, it's about time Manchester United started winning trophies. And I think, he's, I'm not watching him every week, but I know he's he, he can move on a level. With McTominay, I think he's already moved on a level. He started scoring goals this week. There's no reason why his game cannot change as immature. It happens with lots of different players. He's full of energy. Um, he's often runs more than any other player, although he's been beaten by Bruno recently. That's quite interesting. 
And I think Scott's had a great season. I think his performance against Leeds before Christmas was the best individual performance I've seen in a Manchester United shirt this season. That he's added goals to the game just adds to the story because he was seen as being a little bit of a Jose Mourinho love child when he came through the anti-Paul Pogba, if you like. But I see merit in both players. They're completely different players. And Matic has got his skills as well. And just before he won that contract, he was one of Manchester United's best players. But Matic isn't as young as as, um, going forward. If you're looking at the future and we're talking about youth. So if you look at the players who've moved on, I mean, Andres Pereira, I can't really see him having a future at Manchester United. He was someone who played an awful lot of games in that position uh, last season. So just got away. I know that James Garner is really highly thought of by the club and he had a mixed loan spell at Watford, but he'd been doing really well at Nottingham Forest. Probably needs another loan out, maybe a, a lower Premier League club. So these are nice positions for the club to, to be in. And I suppose it's just about Ollie thinking, where do I want? Because we've mentioned all this and we've not even mentioned Donny van der Beek. And there's a bigger question mark over him than probably any midfielder at the moment. So, and also, you, if you're going to be wanting to win the league, you've got to have top, top players. And Fernandinho is still the best midfielder I've seen at Old Trafford this season. And he's older than the Manu Matic, if I'm not mistaken. So, I think that can, can McTominay become that sort of Roy Keane type influence? It's a huge ask. But United's greatest teams, they've had those players in the middle. Paddy Crerand, Bobby Charlton, well, he was quite versatile as well. Brian Robson, Roy Keane. And when you pick out Manchester United's star players over the last couple of years, don't think any of them have been central midfielders. We will get into more mailbag questions next week. Uh, apologies to anyone that didn't get their question read out, but we will get to you in due time. Don't worry. And that's another episode of Talk of Devils, a Manchester United podcast brought to you from The Athletic. We will see you sometime next week. The Athletic. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.